3: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, March 15, 2017. This is the 135th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the executive director of New York's one and only Food and Drink Museum, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be flexible. Be prepared to adapt to unexpected circumstances. As, you, as we know, life happens. Schedules change. Weather changes. Yes, nothing is absolute. So get comfortable with the fact that things may not always go according to your master plan and be ready to go in a new direction. There's no need to stress, just practice flexibility, and things will work out just fine. That's my tip today. Now, I'm happy to have my guest on the show. It is Peter Kim. He is the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, the world's first large-scale food museum with exhibits you can eat. In 2011, Peter began working with Dave Arnold on launching Mofad to create a global center for education that shows people how exciting it is to learn and care about food. Since then, he has overseen all aspects of the project's development. He has been featured in The New York Times, The New Yorker, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and more, and has spoken widely about the museum's dynamic approach. He is calling in today from Austin cuz he's at South by Southwest, so Hello, Peter. Are you out there?
4: Hey, sorry. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. How are you?
4: I'm doing great. I, so I'm actually calling from El Paso because uh, we I just wrapped up at South by Southwest and um, I strung on to this uh, 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 an event with another nonprofit out in El Paso with Dave. So Dave and I are out here right now.
3: Oh, awesome! Well, making yeah. making the best of of your trip out there. So. Oh yeah. Well, cool. Well, well. Thanks for coming on the show today. I'm I'm really excited to talk with you and and hear more about Mofad and 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 what you do there. So, I'd like to start out with my guess as as how you got into the industry. So, what what brought you into the hospitality industry and led you to to where you're at now?
4: Yeah. Well, uh, my first step into the hospitality industry was a crazy endeavor of trying to open a food museum. Um, you know, I actually have a pretty varied professional background. I worked in hunger policy, public health, uh, arts education, and my last pre-MOFED job was actually as a corporate lawyer. Um, while I was working as an attorney, I actually I went to culinary school on the weekends and uh, ran the obligatory supper club out of my apartment, and con- was contemplating uh, moves into the industry, and that's when I. Just, I got wind of this event uh, that was happening at Del Posto, uh, where there's a guy named Dave Arnold who was going to talk about this idea he had for opening a museum of food and drink, and there were going to be these chefs involved, like Dave Chang and Wiley Duprein, uh, Christina Tosi. Um, and I went to this event and heard Dave talk about this idea he had for opening a museum of food and drink, and was totally inspired. And so I, I reached out to him after that just a blind email to, you know, the sort of generic uh, MoFed email address, and uh, he responded enthusiastically and actually started uh, working with Dave as his attorney, and it wasn't until later that I made the leap over to actually start uh, leading the effort to build the museum.
3: Oh, wow. When when was this about? Like, what, what year are we in?
4: Uh, it's March 2011.
3: Okay. Yeah. Uh, because I know and for 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 people listening so Dave Arnold is part of Heritage Radio Network he has an amazing show called Cooking Issues and um so so we're we're big fans I know and we collaborate a lot um with Mofad and Heritage Radio Network which is awesome. So I know Dave kind of had this idea before 2011 like what was I mean how when you met him, was it at, the, at this, this dinner then, was it ready to, to launch the brick-and-mortar part, or how did that go?
4: <laughs> oh, far from it, far, <laughs> far from it. Um, okay. You know, Dave is, um, Dave, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know Dave. You know, he's, he defies adjectives in a lot of ways. I mean, he's, he's a genius, um, and you know, something of a food mad scientist. Um, and, you know, he'd had this idea for, opening a museum uh, back actually in 2004 when he was still just a budding food writer and inventor um, and uh, he went to an exhibit on Vietnamese food and was really disappointed. He just thought it was um, frankly just you know, rinky-dink and so you know, it just wasn't, didn't really do justice to Vietnamese food culture and you know, it occurred to him at that point well, why isn't there a museum, a world-class food museum um, especially in New York City and so he, he started exploring the idea but then he got tapped then to start and run the Department of Culinary Technology at the French Culinary Institute and so it kind of went to the back burner after that and it wasn't until 2011 that he did this lunch and really nothing had happened between the initial idea and this and so he, did, he put this lunch together just to sort of announce the idea and get a little seed money to get things off the ground um, I, you know, when I emailed him actually right, right after the lunch at Del Posto, I figured they had everything figured out and um I didn't even really see what kind of role I could play to help them um get it off the ground. But, you know, when I heard back from Dave I had I told him to bring in all the information about the museum, what the plans were, you know, uh what the funding strategy was, so on and so forth. And there was really nothing, you know, <laughs> he had a, a, a really this a great idea, it's you know, big uh vision, but um but hadn't really fleshed out the 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 bones to it yet, and so I started, you know, just as his attorney to um, advise him on it. But then, you know, I realized over time that he actually needed, you know, somebody needed to step in and actually execute all this.
3: So, so what was your first execution? I guess I say, or like, where did you? <laughs> I mean, how did you go about then 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 creating creating this museum?
4: Yeah, you know, I have to say, um, opening a museum in New York City is a is challenging. You know, it's um, you know you're you're a nonprofit, and so you have to do, really get people to to um, support out of the goodness of their heart. And it's inherently very capital intensive because you need a space, and you need exhibits, you need things, you need stuff. Um, and so, you know, when I when I first started doing research on how to get this off the ground, I realized that. We needed to take a phased approach to this and do something that was more bite sized. And so in 2013, um, so, I, so, I, so I started as a director in May 2012. And it took about a year just to figure out up and down how museums get started, what the voice of MoFed was, get the branding together, get the mission together, uh, understand our curatorial approach. And then the following year, uh, we launched our first um, Kickstarter. Uh, we realized that you know we're going to have to do this, to, uh, get funding through uh, grassroots uh, funding strategies, and so we started with a Kickstarter, and we funded our mobile exhibition that was based around this one spectacular machine that we had acquired, uh, which was a cereal puffing gun. Um, the
3: puffing gun.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you eat cereal, sorry?
3: I of, yes, I do. <laughs>
4: what, what kind of cereal do you eat?
3: oh i don't know i have a variety i don't I don't have a particular i don't have a particular favorite but um but I definitely eat cereal um,
4: yeah. well so, you know cereal actually um there's a crazy story behind cereal I won't get into it right now, but you know it started as a cure for um masturbation among other things um and uh was this religious cure and in the twentieth century there was this shift. To a mass marketed product. And this machine, the puffing gun was part of that. And it basically is this two ton machine that heats up ingredients under extremely high pressure. You fire the trigger and it explodes cereal everywhere. And so we got that and we used that as a mobile museum um, and took it to street fairs and festivals. And that's really how we got our our first step off the ground.
3: Yeah, well, I I remember when the puffing gun came out and I remember the 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 Kickstarter campaign, so um mm-hmm. it all it seemed you know uh, i i mean doing a kickstarter i've you know i've heard I've heard mixed things i think it's i think it's harder than people think um yeah. and but but it obviously it launched you off and i think the the whole puffing gun idea or the whole concept is is brilliant because it's just it's it grabs your curiosity as to well what what is this <laughs>
4: Yeah, and, you know, I think when people saw the puffing gun, they realized, oh, wait, this is not a normal museum because any other museum would have taken this historical artifact, you know, this machine dates back to the 1930s, and would put it in a glass case, and you'd have a sign next to it. Uh, we actually set it up so the thing could work, and you could actually see the magic of how cereal is made, and it's spectacular. You know, it, 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 food literally explodes out of the gun, and kids go crazy to this thing. Right. Um. Anyway, that's that's the gate. That's the gateway into getting people to think about the more serious stories behind cereal. Um, but you need to have that spoonful of sugar.
3: Right. So. So then, how did you go about finding your space in Brooklyn, which you're in Williamsburg? You're in a yeah. hot neighborhood. Uh, I mean, and and yes, I've I've never tried to to start a museum. I doubt many of my listeners have, and it probably is a. Yeah, it's a, a huge process. So, how did that go about the, the actually finding a space?
4: Yeah, you know, it, there's just um, all of these pieces that had to come into place, and that was the work uh, we did um, between the puffing gun and when we opened in uh, 2015, October 2015. Um, you know, you have to get the city supports. We got uh, increasingly we got chefs to sign on and vouch for the museum and help us with our fundraising efforts. Uh, people like Questlove uh, came on to our advisory board. Um, Alex Guarnaschelli championed us. Um, you know, Marcus Samuelson. Um, all these guys really played an instrumental role in helping us expand our network of supporters. Uh, and then we were basically operating as a mobile museum for a couple of years. We did the and Gun, and then we also did uh, programs and, um, and partnered with other organizations to do that. And finally, the funding came together in 2015. And we knew we could actually open up um, a space. And so I started looking around and um, just came across this uh, weird, uh, totally unused uh, construction materials warehouse in uh, Williamsburg. And the landlord, um, you know, wasn't generally very interested in renting out that space. He was just sort of using it as a a personal, he runs a construction company. And so he was using it to store materials. and you know, I talked to him, and he was intrigued by what we were doing. And so, uh, we worked out a lease and uh, moved in um, in October. And it's really, you know, it's a really great October 2015, and it's really just a great place for the museum to be because we're on a, we're on McCarran Park, which is a great family amenity. You know, just a few steps from the pool. Uh, there's a skate park. There's a green market right there. Um, and then you have, of course, the really hot foodie culture of Williamsburg, but also, you know, the diverse roots of the neighborhood overall um, with a lot of different communities that call it home and so for us it's, it's really an ideal place for us to have the first iteration of MoPed.
3: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense it is a great location and um, I want to hear more about now the different exhibits you're doing and, the, and, yeah. and what's been happening but before we do that we're going to take a little break and uh, we're going to come back and talk more with Peter so stay with us, this is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network
1: All mm-hmm. right. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chef's Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chef's Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chef's Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org.
3: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Baer. My guest today is Peter Kim, the executive director of MoFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn. And we're talking about MoFAD. So... I've I've been to the museum and, and I've been to a, a few of the exhibits you've done and it's 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 awesome. So let's talk a little about about these different exhibitions you've been doing because you you rotate different themes in. Am I correct? Yeah,
4: yeah you know, so the space we're in right now we call it MoFed Lab because it's uh, best thought of as the test kitchen for uh, the exhibits we want to put into the bigger museum that we're working toward. Um, uh-huh. And so, you know, we've been really uh, strategic about uh, what we do at Mothad Lab. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, we're creating a museum um, that just—it's—it's in it's a category that just hasn't ever really existed. And so, there's there's a lot to figure out. You know, the, the notion of weaving, tasting, smelling, and eating into a museum exhibition is, is pretty uncharted territory. Um, and so, you know, and we also, you know, I think part of what we're also trying to do is show people the breadth of topics that a museum of food and drink can take on, you know, going beyond just consumption or just the ingredients and looking at food in a really holistic way. Um, so the opening exhibition we did was on flavor, actually, which I think is appropriate because it's sort of a very primary experience we have with food. Um and you don't really think about it, right? But it's, there's this crazy chemistry that goes on in your head every time you bite into a, um, anything. And you know, it's because we, you know, there's your nose and your tongue are basically chemical detectors, and they're putting together this image based on chemicals that are detected by them. Um, and so that exhibition was about science and technology and physiology and really how um, flavor is about. It's almost kind of like best thought of as Legos. You, know, each, you, you put different Legos together to build uh, flavor. Um, and uh, there's an industry that developed around that understanding of flavor called the flavor industry, appropriately enough. And they actually um, adjust the flavor of all the food that we eat, um, <laughs> anything that comes in a package. Um, so we talked about that. And for that, we, did, we invented these uh, smell machines.
3: I remember um, that. That know, was those? fun. <laughs> when yeah. I was there, just, just smelling. Yeah, it was, it was a cool experience.
4: Yeah, you know, you press a button, a smell comes out. Another button, another smell comes out. You put it all together. You can basically play it like a piano and build half a million different flavor combinations uh, using your nose. Um, and so that, that's exciting to those show people. We also created those uh, Jetson-like flavor pellets that um, could, you know, through which we gave people tastings of umami. So, you know, if you didn't know what umami was coming in, you definitely learned what it was like and understood it um, by the time you left the exhibition. Um, Then, you know, because that was such a science and technology-focused exhibition, we wanted to then turn to culture, which is obviously a really important side of food. Um, And so we decided to tell the story of Chinese-American restaurants, let's say um, Chinese takeout places, the places that you see all over the city, um, all over the country, frankly. Um, And so, you know, for that, that's a story... Of immigration, um, identity—it's—it uh, is a crazy history behind Chinese American restaurants, and you know, ironically, it started with the U.S. actually trying to kick the Chinese out um, via the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned immigration from China um, for over sixty years, um, and it led to this—you know—bizarrely led to the development of this cuisine that now is beloved around the country. Um, and so, we tell that through artifacts. We have a menu collection. We also have a fortune cookie machine. Um, where, you know, you see cookies being made and you can eat them right off the conveyor belt.
1: Which is Um,
3: really cool.
4: Yeah. Yeah, kids also love that. Um, I do, too, I have to say. Um, Who doesn't like a good fortune, right? You know, where we we demo culinary technique for visitors. So, you know, again, giving people a multi-sensory experience Um, and taking this very common um, thing we know of, you know, Chinese-American restaurants, using that to explore really deep questions of identity, uh, immigration policy, what it means to be an american. Um so I actually I don't know if you've had a chance to come through sorry, but I'd love to show you.
3: I was there for your opening, well, I don't know, it was the, the oh, launch right. party yeah, yeah. of it. I yeah, yeah, right. yeah, so that's I've been there for that and I I mean I remember the the cool uh chinese takeout box uh, the the whole display you have in front with all the little boxes and and you mm. had some great chefs involved with with that launch party. Um but yeah, I'd love to come back. Uh, so it was a good kickoff.
4: Yeah, and this was actually one thing that's exciting about this exhibition is it's been a way for us to work directly with chefs on our curatorial content. Um, for the walk station, we put out a call to Chinese-American chefs around the country to submit recipes uh, that would highlight different uh, culinary techniques used in a Chinese-American kitchen. Um, and so we got folks like Jeremiah Stone, you know, who has Wild there and Contra um we have we got uh, Leanne Wong out in Hawaii um here in New York Jonathan Wu and Chris Chung uh, they all submitted these recipes that were personally meaningful to them that we then create and serve for all visitors who come to the exhibition
3: Yeah no it's a great 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 lineup of chefs and people involved and I've see I see on your website and also I've been noticing on Twitter that you have these upcoming programs and workshops that you do mm-hmm um like you've had some some things with Hiroko Shimbo and yeah. like tell me about about that and how that works
4: Yeah well you know i think uh, we have such grand ambitions for the museum. Uh, I mean, I want to cover everything from digestion to fermentation to, you know, the history of the kitchen to understanding space food, you know, uh, to biodiversity. I mean, I could keep going on and on. But I think sometimes with the space we have, it's always hard that we can only have one exhibition on at a time. Um, and so, programs are our way of also being able to show that there's, you know, all the other kinds of topics that uh, MOFAD will touch on. And so, yeah, with Hiroko Shinbo, we're doing a program on uh, Japanese pickles. Um, we have uh, Chef Ainat Admoni coming in uh, to do a demo of handmade couscous. And, um, but you know, we also did debates on controversial issues. We did a debate on the future of meats on GMOs. Um, you know, I think we're the programs are a great way for us to to show that breadth of our approach.
3: Yeah, that's great. And you have an upcoming spring benefit, I saw, too, a dinner. Um, Is that just an annual benefit you do? Yeah. Every
4: year we do a a blockbuster event. It's it's one of our main sources of funding to fund our exhibitions and programs. Um, And uh, this is where we uh, really rely a lot on the support we have in the culinary industry. Um, So this year we... um, I actually have to say, one thing we, One thing I love is like when we do our fundraising events, I mean, we can have a lot of fun with it because uh, the food and drink that we serve in at the fundraising event is part and parcel of our mission. So we really nerd out, I and mean, we've done stuff like recreating an ancient Roman meal, and Mark Ladner got a whole ostrich and um, <laughs> cooked it and made uh, this fish sauce garum um, according to an ancient Roman recipe. Um, we've had, you know, Dominique Ansel reimagined a dong as a MRE, you know, a military ration. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so this year we're, we're taking on, um, we're, we're, we're celebrating the current curatorial focus at MOFAD, which is immigrant food cultures. And so we're honoring Ruth Reichel, who obviously did a lot to uh, change people's understanding of how we define American food. Um, and the events hosted by Gail Simmons and uh, Alex Guernicelli is our culinary chair and we have some great chefs we have Marcus Samuelson, Floyd Cardos uh, Manish Narotra and um, uh, Mina Pizarro and so its uh, I'm super excited and you know it's going to be a really meaningful and delicious event too
3: awesome i that's thats coming up on, on April 13th do I have yep. the date right? okay well that's if right. people want to check it out um, I'm sure it's going to be a terrific dinner and as far as, um, like, what, what's next with, with MOFAD? How, how far, like, how long is the Chinese, um, the Chow exhibition going to go on? And then do you know what's coming next? Um, are you, is that in the works?
4: Yeah, you know, so Chow's going to be running through the summer. And this fall, we're going to put some new exhibits in the, at MOFAD Lab. But overall, I think we're starting to refocus. You know, after we opened the space in October 2015, and you know, the last year and a half has been about really figuring out, getting our, getting into our groove, so to speak, of running essentially a small museum. Um, and uh, now I think that we've really um, figured a lot out of how to make a food museum work at this scale. Um, now I'm turning my sights back toward uh, expansion, and so. Uh, the next step for us is opening a museum um, that is on the order of thirty thousand square feet, um, where we can have multiple exhibitions going on at the same time. Uh, you know, world-class programming facilities. Um, you know, uh, a garden where we can highlight biodiversity. Um, and you know, this, this is this is a, this is going to take a serious fundraising effort. And so, uh, a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to lay the groundwork and find the champions who want to contribute to the cultural landscape of new york city because you know this is really um... i think there's no museum like this in the world and which is kind of crazy but um... But on the other hand you know i i'm really glad that it's, it's my sound so self-serving but i do i am glad that MoFed is the one um... that is uh... you know that we're seizing the mantle here because we are we are purists and we are really dedicated to our educational mission and I think there's a lot of ways you could make a food museum that would be kind of watered down, but for us, we we take it we take our um, our role really seriously. So anyway, sorry. So the next step for us is is working towards that bigger museum, um, and using multi lab as a as a way to show people uh, what that next step could be like.
3: Got it. And you're looking in in New York City to to have this larger space.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, open. I'm open to a number of different locations and. I'm talking to some developers, but, you know, I think Manhattan would be ideal.
3: We'll take it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, great. So before we take a break, I have a question from my, my guest on my show last week I had on Lonnie Sweet. He's the president and CEO of The Connect Group. Uh-huh. And, and he wants to know, what's your favorite type of food?
4: Yeah. Oh, hmm. let's see. You know, actually, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, for me, I, I always, uh, I, I think the thing that's most satisfying for me is, is traditional food and, you know, food that people really identify with. Um, I think wherever I go, whenever I travel, I, I love just discovering the food that people call their own, and, you know, for me, like right now, uh, you know, I'm, I, you know, we just went into Juarez, and, uh, you know just did a walk through the market with a guy from there, and, you know, it's just so incredible to um, see people and how proud they are of the food that they make. So, I don't know, that's may be too broad of a category, but that's, that would, you know, that's generally what I look for, um, but if I had to pick something specific, uh, I think I'm always a sucker for uh, Korean lettuce wraps, and that's sort of my comfort go-to, is um, just, you know, it's, it's called Sam and um i just i i love it i love it i
3: make it for myself all the time yum i want one right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i get what you're saying i feel like it's it, with it's kind of like situational cuisine i, would, I mm-hmm. would maybe call it like when you're when you're in texas you know you you want the tacos or the barbecue or, you know when you're in japan yeah. obviously you want japanese food so um, that makes sense to me mm mm-hmm. Okay, and on that note, we're going to take another break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to play my speedrun game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Peter Kim, the executive director of MoFAD, and it's time for my speed round game. So Peter, what this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things, and you just pick your preference. It's like either or situation. Are got you, it. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail?
4: Ooh. <laughs> Wine.
3: How <laughs> about tasting menu or a la carte?
4: Oh, tasting menu.
3: Small plates or large plates?
4: Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I'm going to say large plates because I like family-style eating.
3: Okay. Good reason. How about communal table or chef's counter?
4: Boy, I would say community table.
3: Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge?
4: Uh, all-inclusive.
3: All right. This one, this this was a fun one coming up. <laughs> Puffing gun or fortune cookie machine?
4: Oh, God. You're making me choose between
3: two <laughs> of my babies. <laughs> I know. Maybe I shouldn't have said fun. It was a, a tough one. I don't um, know. Do you have a you preference?
4: Uh, I'm going to say... Puffing Gun, because Fortune Cookie Machine is spectacular, but the Puffing Gun is something that you just have never seen anything like <laughs> it, you know. So, yeah, I'll go Puffing Gun.
3: Okay. <laughs> a few more. South by Southwest or any other conference?
4: Oh, man. Um, boy, so hard. But, um, I, you know, I, I just I like a lot of different conferences, I, I guess. Sorry. Um, let's you. go... South by Southwest, uh, it's it, it's a good time.
3: Okay, cool. What was what was the talk you gave, because um, at South by Southwest, just a oh little yeah, interlude. We did.
4: Um, so I actually did a panel um, with Pinterest, uh, moderating, and it was about food and millennials. And so um, there was uh, I did it with uh, a fellow named Oren from TasteMade, um, and then uh, this uh, lady named Eve who wrote a book on food and millennials. And we sort of talked about, you know, the food hype right now and is that something, you know, what's causing it and how how long is it going to last and how do you even, you know, how do you harness it? Um, It was really great.
3: Cool. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Okay. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert?
4: Cheese plate all the way.
3: Manhattan or Brooklyn?
4: Oh, God, it's hard. Um, I have to say Manhattan.
3: Okay, I thought you were going to pick Brooklyn, just well, because of the yeah. museum's location. But but I, I'm I'm am I'm, I'm all for Manhattan, and even though we're here in Brooklyn, uh, they're not going to be mad at us for, for our <laughs> answers.
4: Well, you know, because I live in the East Village, and I have to say, I have so much love for that neighborhood, um, and I've you know, it's where I've been since I moved to New York. Um, East Village and Lower East Side. I just really, you know, it's just, it's home for me. And so, as much as I love Brooklyn, um, and I spend most of my time, I in Brooklyn. Um, I, it's you know, I have to, I have to represent for my neighborhood.
3: Right. Okay. That's great. And that's the game. Nice. So, um, we're going to talk a little industry news. I had yeah. an article. In the New York times that came out today by Kim Severson and titled chef's struggle of over Whether to serve up politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a really, it's a really good read. Um, basically talking about how chefs are trying to figure out how much they want to be involved in politics. And, um, I was excited also to talk about this just because in the article she, she mentioned being down at South Beach Wine and Food Festival, and um, I saw her there at this panel, Politics Do Belong at the Dinner Table, with Andrew Zimmern and, and Michelle Nishan. So in the article she talked about that, and she also um, had a quote from Stephanie Izard, and I saw her in having the interview with Stephanie. So I always, I always like when things come to life where I've, I've actually seen them in the making. (laughs) So, um, but it is interesting. Um, I I mean, they also talked, she also talked in the article about how the James Beard foundation has these boot camps um, on food policy that have become much more popular over the years. And, and there's a a long waiting list of chefs looking to, to sign up. So um, what's your take on, on this?
4: Oh yeah, well, that, it, was, it is a great article and I have to say it really hit home because it's something we wrestled with quite a bit at the museum um, when the executive order came out. Um, you know, it's our, our current curatorial focus and this happened, you know, we, we made this decision in December 2015 so, you know, when the primaries were happening uh, but our current focus is on immigrant contributions to American food culture mm-hmm. and our current exhibition is about Chinese immigrants Who were who suffered under the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the U.S.'s attempt to block the Chinese from coming into the country because we viewed them as a threat to the public and also as competition for jobs. Um, So it's really, you know, it hits you know when the executive order came out, it really hit home on uh, what we're what we're doing right now. And you know, I think I'll say say off the bat that I think everybody, I don't really. Subscribe to the notion that, you know, uh, a restaurant is not a political entity. I think we all are, and we always make political statements with everything we do. Um, Even if we don't do anything, that's also a statement. Um, And, you know, at MoFed, I think for us, actually something in the article that really struck me was the person was saying that, you know, it's this message that used to be very innocuous, you know, know, immigrants are welcome here, um, but now feels like this uh, statement that kind of puts you on one side or the other of this of this line, um, and you know I think that's something we really wrestled with at the museum. You know I think we certainly all agree at the museum that uh, we celebrate immigrant food cultures, and we view. I mean, you know my my we always say when people ask what is American food, well we say you know most of it is immigrant food actually, um, and but you know I think for us the, the counterbalancing thing was well you know we want everybody to feel welcome at the museum and you know if we put up a statement or a sign saying um... you know responding to the executive order then would that actually uh... deter some people from coming if they felt that they didn't it wasn't a place where they belonged or would be welcome so it's really weird to say like well saying that we welcome everybody could actually make some people not feel welcome um... and i think ultimately we decided to um take a more uh, oblique tack let's say and not make any overt statements like that because we want everybody to come to the museum and when you're there and you visit Chow, i think the message of Chow comes through pretty clearly you know we um, you know we our, our role here is i think making sure that the story of past times when we did something like this what happened then and you know it caused a lot of hardship so yeah I, you know i don't really have a, a great direct answer but you know i think um, I think everything we are all political and uh but it's you know it's it's a hard thing to wrestle with because yeah, you want to make sure everybody still feels welcome, so yeah, I don't know
3: you know, I think you had a great great answer i, I yeah. think I think the points you made um are exactly what what this article is talking about that chefs are are you know trying to figure out where where they want to stand and and then you also have people you have people like tom Colicchio – um who came on my show a couple of months ago and he's, you know, helped start food policy action. Here's he's I see him on Twitter. He tweets more about politics than anything. Yeah. He's not he's not tweeting about his restaurants really as much. He's 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 using his platform to have a voice. So um, it's interesting to see to see what's happening in that. Um, I mean, I think the conversation will be continued.
4: Yep. Yeah.
3: So, um... Yeah,
4: and I think there's a legitimate debate to be had here. You know, I think you can take the tack of being very vocal, and I think that's valuable um, because uh, speaking up certainly um, is you know is a valuable thing to do. But the other thing you can do is, uh, or you can do something where you try to uh, take a more subtle approach and you know do what you can to open people's eyes to uh, to the contributions of immigrants um, and how important they are. Um, right. And I think, yeah. So, it, but there's a debate to be had, you know. And and I think, um, you know, it, it's hard because you just really don't want to alienate. I mean, you have to uh, you have to respect the fact that it's nearly half the country that is, you know, behind this. And so, um, so yeah. yeah. Anyway, tough
3: question. Oh uh, well, good discussion. So, yeah, th- yeah. The other other article I had, which is sad news, it was on Eater yesterday. How Lucky Peach will likely fold in May, and this was by Amanda Clute. Mm-hmm. And I think. I think everyone that you know I, I know in the industry is 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 sad about this. Apparently there were layoffs that happened on Monday um laying off the whole staff which seems that they're going to have their last issue in May and this is uh the 6-year-old indie food media um outlet by writer Peter Meehan and restaurateur David Chang who yeah. who we all know. And so um uh you know uh I don't know. Not not news you want to hear about uh, Lucky yeah. Peach folding. So,
4: oh, it's such a bummer. I mean, I remember reading the first issue of Lucky Peach and just feeling it was such a refreshing uh, take on food. Um, and honestly, in a lot of ways, you know, I think if I, I think about you know if Mofad actually ever had a magazine, it actually you know I think Lucky Peach will certainly be an inspiration for us um, because yeah, it, it was it just was uh, so great yeah. and like you know. Yeah, I don't know. As, yeah. as a food nerd, it was it was a great magazine to read. So.
3: Yeah, I agree. And um, we're running a little short on time for the rest of the stuff I had, but um, I'll just make a little announcement. So, so Grub Street had an article yesterday on how two of New York's most notable chefs are leaving their restaurants. This was by Sierra Tishgard. And this is Jonathan Beno has announced he's leaving Lincoln after six years and he's going to do his own solo project. And James Kent is leaving the Nomad also to do something solo. So I wish them the best. And um, the other news uh, 12 o'clock today, the James Beer Foundation Awards um, For 2017, they had a live Facebook, Facebook Live, and they tweeted all the nominees that are for this year's awards. And just a shout out to some of my past guests, Ellie Krieger and Adam Sachs, and were nominated and Michelle Nishan, he's a Who's Who recipient this year, which is very exciting. And on April 5th, I'm having on Missy Robbins, and she was nominated for Best New York City Chef. So congratulations to them and everyone involved. Um, Stay tuned. April 25th will be the Media Awards in New York City. And then on May 1st, it's the gala in Chicago. And I'm going to be going to the gala. So I'm excited about that. And uh, on that note, one more little break. And then we're going to come back and do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week it's at Casa Enrique. Here's the rundown. The location 548 49th Street, Long Island City, Queens, New York City. The concept Casual Cantina serving up refined Mexican classics and cocktails. The chef, Cosme Aguilar. Why did I go? Because this Michelin star restaurant has been on my must-checkout list for a while. My experience. So I went for an early dinner. I was able to get a seat at the bar right away. Once I got the bartender's attention, I asked for his recommendations, and he took my order. I actually, while I was eating, I decided to order extra food to go, which was a first for me, but I wanted to try more things. So I ate at the bar and then I took leftovers home and I had a bit later and the next day for lunch. So what did I get? I had the guacamole with medium spice served with homemade totopos, which are chips. I had lengua taqueria, which is two cow tongue tacos slowly cooked and the depoyo con mole de piaxla, which is chicken enchiladas with mole sauce. My take... Great guac, although the ratio of chips to guac was a bit off. I always feel they give you more chips than you have guac, but it was delicious, delicious guacamole. And um, the tongue tacos were very tasty. I'm not sure I'd had tongue tacos before. And I love the chicken enchiladas. They had a rich mole sauce that was, was decadent and delightful. So the ambiance, a simple decor with a bar and communal table up front and back dining room. Perfect for a Mexican feast with friends. Interesting tidbit. Case Enrique was awarded one Michelin star in 2015 and has held it since. Personal fun fact I think I got inspired to take things to go by the man sitting next to me who was waiting for his to go order, and he told me that they had stopped, the restaurant had stopped doing delivery once they received a Michelin star because they became too busy. So now you have to do um, pickup. The cost was $40, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. Their website is. HenryNYC.com, and that's because the owners have another restaurant called Cafe Henry, and that's Henry with an I. So that's my solo dining, and so now Peter, it is time for the final question. So next, my next guest is Randy Weinstein. She's the founder of Fab, a two-day conference for women in the hospitality industry, taking place June 11th to 13th in Charleston, South Carolina. So Peter, what would you like to ask Randy?
4: Uh, this is a little bit of a self serving question, but I am very curious to know um, if Randy could answer the question. Uh, what museum exhibition would you like to see that highlights the importance of women in the hospitality industry?
3: That's a good question. I mean, no, I like it. Uh, 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 I will ask. We'll see what she <laughs> says. <laughs> yeah. So, Great. and that's the show. So, it was a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, congratulations with everything you've done with MOFAD and what's to come. I, I look forward to, to hearing more about it and, and coming back to the museum. So, um, And I hope to see you again soon back in New York City.
4: Yeah, thanks so much, Shari.
3: My pleasure. So my guest today has been Peter Kim. He's the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Their website is mofad.org. You can find him on social media at Peter MoFAD and at MoFAD. And I'd like to just shout out to MoFAD themselves and Peter for being a great supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Um, we, We love our collaborations with you. You can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at org. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks always to my engineer, Vitor. I'm Sherry Bayer. I am going to be away next week, so I'm going to be playing a rerun. I think we're going to be doing Tom Calicchio's show, if you want to tune in then. And then I'll be back live on Wednesday, March 29th at 4 p.m. with Randy Weinstein. So have a great week, everyone, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.